Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle bad information one fact at a time. On this week's episode, we discuss misinformation in politics with MPs from both the Conservative and Labour parties. Politician is consistently polled as one of the least trustworthy professions in the UK. But how has misinformation become so synonymous with politics? And how can politicians begin to rebuild trust in their profession? We spoke to Labour's John McDonnell and the Conservative Selene Saxby. But before that, we're joined by Cassie Staines, one of the Full Facts policy managers. Cassie, when Full Fact finds out a politician has misrepresented the truth, what do you actually do beyond writing a fact check about it? So once our team of fact checkers has established that a claim is incorrect or misleading in some way, my role is to decide how best to get that politician to correct the record. Research tells us that fact-checking is more effective when the person who made the original claim corrects themselves, ideally on the same platform that they made the claim. How we actually do this depends on who the politician was and where they made the claim. So, for example, if they are a government minister and they made the claim in Parliament, there's an official process for correcting the record, which is called Hansard. There's no process for MPs or shadow ministers to do this, which is something that we think should be changed. But if they've made a claim on Twitter, then we might ask them to clarify the tweet or at least delete the tweet because that way it stops the misinformation from spreading. Now, I follow quite a lot of MPs online and I'm not seeing deletions or corrections that often. Uh, What's your success rate? (laughs) Uh, It's mixed. (laughs) Um, sometimes we we get ignored but we also have lots of examples of where MPs really do engage with us and they support the principle of accuracy in public life and so they're willing to talk to us about it they don't always agree but often they are willing to delete the tweet even if they're not willing to clarify it specifically because as well as correcting the record we're also hoping that our intervention will encourage behavior change so whether that's in the future, getting that MP to just check a little bit more carefully before they put figures up, before they talk about them. Or, you know, if it's encouraging a government department to make better use of data before they brief a minister to give a speech. So that kind of behaviour change is a really important part of what we do, as well as just correcting the record. Okay, well, I think it's time for us to hear from some politicians. So we're joined first by Labour's John McDonnell. When you're about to quote some facts, have those been checked by your team do you check them yourself how does it work try to um it depends on the nature of the event that you're talking to or the institutional arrangements that you're involved in if it's a speech in the house of commons there's the wonderful house of commons library that you can use which are extremely competent reliable and most of the time you can use them to yeah, literally, it is a fact check, and you can get a rounded view from them as well. Because when they're providing information, they also make sure that's pretty well checked, but also balanced as well. That's the first thing. The second thing, yes, you will try and use your own staff, but this sounds like me bleating, but I'm not. You've got a lim- as an individual MP, you've got a limited number of staff because most of your staff will be dealing with constituency matters. You'll be lucky if you can devote one member of staff or half a member of staff to parliamentary work and research. So your staff are always stretched in that point. But often, and if it's a, a wider meeting, particularly a political meeting or a public meeting, often you're left to your own devices and at times you can be stretched. And you know, we have to be honest in that you can also make mistakes because you can draw upon information that you think is reliable, then later you find isn't. And at that point, 
the only thing you can do is hold your hands up really and admit it and then try and correct do you think that it's still part of what people call politics when politicians tend to cherry pick facts that yeah. will support their arguments and and how much of that do you think is politics how much of that do you think we need to start getting rid of? Because let's face it, John, uh, it's, not, it's not a surprise, but politicians are, are ranking quite low on the trust level right now with the public. From the earliest times when the debates or discussions took place, and we're talking about thousands of years, people will always choose the facts that support their arguments. And we've all done it in every walk of life. However, if you want to maintain credibility, you have to demonstrate actually that you can mount an argument based upon facts that can, first of all, be proven. But secondly, also, people do have this sort of reasonableness type judgment about you as well. And so I think people see through that. But again, it's a salutary lesson that you learn in politics, especially, but I think other walks of life, too. If you do over-egg the pudding, people will see through that and challenge it. We've all been there when you get carried away in a speech and you throw out a whole range of facts without giving a balanced approach. But I think people cut through quite a bit of that. Um, I certainly hope they do. Do you think you have the tools as someone who's very prominent in political life to be as accurate as you can be? It's interesting. It depends on the position you're in. If you're in government you have the whole of the civil service. And behind the civil service as well, you'll have a range of agencies, but also you'll also have a range of organizations that militate towards you to provide you with information. I've been a civil servant as well as a politician. I was the chief executive of a local government association. So I've advised politicians as well as being a politician myself. When you're in power, you've got that huge resource. Even then, mistakes get made. And even then, the politicians selecting the facts in that way provide almost a distorted picture. But there's no excuse when you're in government not to have the information available to you because you've got that vast resource. When you're in opposition, and if you're on the back benches, you are stretched, to be honest. In opposition, you're stretched. The problem in opposition as well is that you will have a large number of organisations offering you a resource in the hope that they'll influence your policy as you go into government. And you have to be extremely careful about the resources that you get provided. So, for example, when I was Shadow Chancellor, a number of the big accountancy firms had offered resources and staffing to opposition parties to support them. I cleared that out. I, I, didn't, I didn't want that influence coming to bear because it, when, you, when that resource is provided, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. People will expect something in return. So I cleared that out. In interesting in other political systems, there is a lot more resources provided to individual MPs and to opposition parties to enable them to operate effectively. There is a resource issue here. So if you haven't, if you've got, for example, one single researcher and you, you're involved in a detailed piece of legislation, it puts an awful lot of onus on you and that one researcher. When you're dealing with issues so complex that the minister will have dozens of civil servants advising him or her on that legislation. So there is that imbalance of resource, definitely. Let's talk a little bit about what happens when politicians get things wrong. Uh, maybe they've got them wrong by human error, or maybe they've chosen to cherry pick uh, a particular bit of information, and then it's been pointed out to them that they've, they've made a mistake. What do you think should happen next? Because there's a lot of conversation about how politicians should go about setting the record straight. Well, 
it's happened to me a couple of times and you have to be straight with people that when you if there's a factual error usually it's fairly straightforward and that you can in first of all you can make sure that you correct it in whatever you say or write afterwards that's the first thing but secondly if it's a serious error there is a form of procedure in the house of commons where the minister comes to the chamber and corrects the record i think actually that should be afforded more to other members of the house as well so not just ministers but others and occasionally that has happened you come back and say actually i got that wrong let me correct that and in some ways you win the respect for that but at the same time you know what the house of commons is like there's a bit of a bear pit you get hammered as well just for admitting any form of error and you'd think you know i was brought up a catholic <laughs> and, and we were all always told the pope was infallible now there seems to be ministers who think they're infallible as well i think a lot more openness and transparency would help what about outside and when when politicians are in the public domain using their own social media or appearing in interviews just take i go back to my shadow treasury role if i said anything it would be pounced upon by the media and that was all part of the cut and thrust of politics and all the rest so you're up for that but also you do have think tanks that will explore what you've said and they will challenge you and then there'll be an alternative point of view and then you're into a debate then because sometimes it's the interpretation of the fact rather than the fact itself so i, I welcome that we we need to look a bit more about, if you like, the arrangements that we have. In other countries, you have many more institutions funded by government themselves independently, not party political, that will look and check things. Within our country, we do have independent organisations. And sometimes, even then, they'll come back and say, you know, this is not accurate or we want to query that sort of thing. And you can get into a debate with them. Facts, you know, facts are facts. And actually, there's a lot of subjectivity around it selection of facts but also the interpretation of those facts i welcome that debate the problem that we've got to particularly with regard to social media is it is so fast-paced that an inaccuracy and a downright lie can be put up there and by the time you've refuted it or rebutted it it's too late it's taken hold and then you're almost to an exaggerated extent you then get into almost conspiracy theories about what's going on and it's the pace on social media that's part of the problem. And also the fact that the social media platforms themselves are loath to insist upon things being taken down because of inaccuracy. But would you welcome a closer scrutiny on politicians? There's sort of a more, as you said, more transparent, perhaps, perhaps a more uh, robust and, and rules-based system where we have, we have fact-checking done on politician statements, but also there's a very clear um, procedure of, of how the record is set straight. Yeah. If you put something in a tweet, then you're going to have to either take that tweet down or correct your tweet rather than just ignore no. it. First of all, I think before we get to rules, I think there should be some common agreement about the standards that we all abide by. That's the first thing. I think that we should all try and raise our game on this. That's the first thing. But secondly, I think there should be much more of a rules-based system for example, those timescales in which things have to be rebutted, and then if it's proved to be inaccurate, they're taken down. And I'd welcome that. You have to always be careful about freedom of speech and making sure there are protections in place. But when it is fairly straightforward, horrendous misinformation, there has to be something addressed. How important do you think it is 
that politicians from both sides, or from all sides, because there's not just two, agree on a common set of truths. Because it seems to me that it's impossible to wrestle with people on an on a, on a intellectual level and have a discussion and a proper debate if you can't all have the same starting point. You know, we're getting to the point where people are dealing with, as Kellyanne Conway said, alternative facts. And it seems to me that if you don't agree on the facts to start with, there's no way you're going to agree on on the debates at the end of the conversation. Part of this, oh, look, what are facts? What's objective and what's subjective? And there's all lots of blurred edges on that. Of course, they are. How one particular fact can be interpreted one way or another becomes a heightened subjectivity when you get into political debate. We need to have much more effectively, I think, more independent um, review and analysis of some of the key information on which we base decisions. To a certain extent, there's some areas where that is beginning to happen. You know, we're facing the existential threat of climate change at the moment. Well, the biggest crisis that we face on top of the pandemic. The establishment of the Committee on Climate Change was a huge breakthrough because actually it is recognised as pretty independent in a very contentious field. But the Climate Change Committee actually has been respected by all the political parties of having an objective approach to a very contentious area and actually is able to publish reports that then do become the basis of, I think, a much more honest debate on climate change than there was before. So I think that's quite a good example. It does mean the government might, you know, the government at times has completely ignored the views coming out of the Climate Change Committee, but nevertheless, they haven't challenged the accuracy of them. So I think there are areas like that in which you can see there is a process that's evolved that enables us to accept the facts or the information that's provided to us, and that then enhances the debate. It's a good example of how you can go about it. One final question, John. How much fact-checking have you been having to do with members of your own constituency? Are you witnessing evidence of misinformation yeah. bleeding into your constituents? I'm, look, I'm really I'm, this does worry me. COVID is a good example, where there are a whole range of different levels of advice provided to government. There's a formal system through SAGE, and you do have a range of then other advisors who take a contrary view, and that's completely understandable. And so I'll have representations from constituents who will say, I, you know, I disagree with the proposals on the lockdown or the way the government is implementing particular policy. And there's the range of examples of why, uh, of advice. Why, and I quite welcome that. That's quite good. But it's in areas like this, it's going beyond that as well. And you're getting down to information, which is then plucked from social media on the, and the net in particular, which is bizarre at times. And you think, why is this taken hold? And it, it is this point that you've made earlier, where there is a deep skepticism about believing anybody not just politicians, it's anybody. So that's why I think we do need an honest debate. There are certain democratic values and rules of the game that we need to re-examine on all the, all the political parties and all those engaged in political debate doing that. There's some institutional arrangements that we're going to establish. I've given some examples of that that might help move that forward. But then, again, in particularly with regard to the new media platforms, Maybe there are some new rules that we need to introduce now to make sure that we restore confidence in the political debate. There'll always be knockabout. There'll always be scepticism, and that's healthy. 
but actually the parameters need re-examining now. And I think that's the healthy debate that we need in the future. John, thank you so much for giving us your time. John McDonnell, thank you. Cassie, uh, the one thing that jumped out from that interview for me was John's mentioned that he is very happy for fact checkers to point out inaccuracies so that they then can be discussed. Are we always going to have this issue that whatever facts and figures you put in front of any politician from any side of the house, they will still want to interpret them in their own way? Facts are provable, so not in themselves subjective. But it's definitely fair to say that facts can be interpreted in different ways. And that's why at Full Fact, we always link in our articles to the evidence from what we're saying and why we always ask politicians to link to published information sources when they're making a claim so that people can really judge for themselves based on the facts presented to them, what they think about a particular issue. Okay. Well, it's now time to hear from our other MP guest, uh, Conservative MP, Selene Saxby. She's the MP for North Devon and one of the new intake from the election of 2019. What do you do when you are dealing with facts, figures that you will use in a speech in the House of Parliament or you will use in a press interview? What measures do you take to make sure that they are factually correct? Um, We're very lucky that we have the House of Commons Library, which is a great source of independent data and research, which I will often cross-reference things on. We get um, daily briefings um, from all sorts of people on all sorts of matters. So quite often I will have individual team members tracking certain bills or certain topics so that we're getting proper data coming through on a regular basis for all of those. Um, And as somebody who is a mathematician by training, I will often ask for extra bits of data. So I will quite often check So a lot of the COVID numbers I'm triple checking, particularly at this point in time, it's vital that we're using data appropriately. I mean, it's wonderful to hear uh, how much uh, trouble you're you're going to to make sure that what you are putting out there is factually correct. Do you think that a lot of politicians are following the same practice and procedure? And how much do you rely on your team to also help out? Um, I obviously can't talk for colleagues in terms of how much data checking that they all do and I think some people are very much driven by their beliefs rather than the data um, and I am trying very hard to, to retain my um, sort of mathematical integrity around challenging some of the data and using that to inform some of the decisions that I'm taking because I think it is really really important. Would you welcome a more scrutinised press where uh, politicians and their statements are rigorously fact-checked? And I ask this because the biggest problem we have now is people come up with their own facts or they dispute your facts. Do you think that it's time now for us to start agreeing what the facts are and then we can start discussing that, debating that? I think it's terribly important, actually, that the media do establish what's factually accurate. And I think a lot of the challenges that we we face are where media reports are are perhaps based, again, on their own agenda or understanding of the agenda, because I think it's also very clear when you work with numbers, you can prove anything with stats. And I think a lot of the stats that we have at this point in time, we could prove a very large number of arguments 
um, using different cuts of exactly the same data and how it's displayed and how it looks. And um, some of the things I used to actually enjoy teaching was um, how, how you, you can use data to distort your argument or to create a different argument. And it doesn't mean that either one's necessarily wrong. It's about understanding that you've got the right data for the right question. And so for me, that, that's quite an interesting challenge. And I find it quite fascinating to see how different media outlets choose different bits of data to back up different arguments. Um, but I do think it has been a very difficult pandemic to get clear information to people. And I know far too many constituents have just stopped listening to any media reporting um, because it has been obviously quite depressing, but also they're struggling to get clear information through. And I think that is now quite difficult at this phase where people are weary of lockdown and restrictions. And how do you get people to comply and follow guidance when they're not actually necessarily we, you know we choose who we believe to provide us with factually accurate information and if that choice that you've made all your life you suddenly start challenging do i believe them now then people are struggling a bit to know where to get their data and information from unfortunately i do fear um not universally but many of them have sought other sources of information and i really worry greatly about what is being posted on social media um, and how that actually influences people's perceptions of reality and that we have some very big groups um, up here which are described as news um, whereas actually they're community chat groups which you know they're great they serve their own purpose and they're fantastic for communities but they're not news and i think it is very dangerous that these groups are allowed um, to carry on and not be well moderated and people are picking up information on those um, and believing it to be the truth um, and i think that does become difficult in terms of being able to you know find the wood for the trees when there's so much of that available so would you be in favor of social media being a bit more stringent on the information that it allows to be shared i think when it comes to health you know we're in a national pandemic at this point in time and i would like to see some slightly better moderation looking at my inbox today people aren't getting the information through that they need because they are coming back to mps to say could you confirm can this open what does this mean for my business and so i think we are struggling to get our messages through because in many ways there are so many messages as much as anything else there is so much news at this time now one of the the biggest elements of uh, misinformation how we have uh, seen it is the element of trust people will go to sources that they trust would you welcome uh, a fact-checking organization to say look we've we've seen your tweet or your statement in parliament or your statement in a in a in an interview and, and actually it's not quite right would you welcome that as a politician would you see that as a help to doing your job or do you would you find that a, a hindrance to doing your job i wouldn't be worried about it per se i'm still quite a relatively new mp um i think it's about how some of that information is used and i think you know we work in a very hostile social media environment as mps why why do you see the social media as, as a hostile environment because to my mind I, I would i would have thought i'm not a politician but if i was i would see social media as, as a wonderful thing for politicians you don't have to rely on people like me to have to interview to voice your views you can get on twitter you can tell your constituents what your views are at any given time of the day why do you view social media as hostile I think um, it's obviously a fantastic broadcast medium as an MP and obviously everyone has the opportunity then to come back as a broadcast medium and I think people do not moderate their comments on social media in the way that if they were sat in my office 
that they would choose to speak to me. Um, and a lot of the language that is used on social media, I think is unnecessarily hostile. People hide behind profiles that don't exist, so you can't tr trace them. And um, I don't think that many of my MP colleagues, fortunately, have had the threats to their faces or down their phone lines that we get on social media. Um, and I think if you want to read through some of our Twitter feeds, you'll very rapidly find why many of us feel it's quite a hostile environment and why many of our supporters choose to say very little actually on social media because um, we actually call it hate mobbing. We've actually got a word for it now, which is where people just sort of literally dive in on, on an issue and will choose to just really interrogate not even interrogate just throw abuse actually let's call it what it is and in recent weeks you know we've seen on social media people trying to track down people's homes so that they can threaten to go around and actually attack their families you know the police have been out front to a number of MPs properties in recent weeks following what's gone on mostly on social media so I think that's why we see it as a hostile environment it's it's you know lovely that you're able to reach so many people so quickly and that is obviously a positive but I think it is also quite a threatening environment particularly if it if it turns on you and you end up with millions of people shouting at you basically uh, through a social media forum. How much importance do you put on cross-party cooperation when it comes to deciding the facts and is there evidence of that i mean i know all party parliamentary groups are cross-party and people do get together and it's wonderful to see politicians working together but do you think we need a little bit more of that and um, i personally would have liked to have seen a bit more of that and i feel at the start of the pandemic there was more of that and i do think it has been unfortunate um with the change of leadership in the opposition that that seems to have dropped off a little um, and I think that has made it much more difficult um, and you know we obviously there are examples of opposition MPs stating that this is a good crisis to exploit and I think um, that is not helpful you know at, at this point in time I do think we should be working for the best of the country and I certainly feel that the vast majority of colleagues are doing that and you know I've been on several cross-party calls and I think we are finding ways many of us to work better together and respect each other's views but I do think some of the slightly punch and judy politics at Westminster has not been helpful for people if we want people to come on this journey with us which ultimately until the vaccine is through is about compliance that actually that all that stands between us and a killer virus is how we behave um, and therefore if we want everyone to behave the same way which is what we do to uh, you know follow the guidance then actually we need to really pre present a united front and I do think um, it's unfortunate that that has changed during the course of the pandemic. Now, one of the uh, big questions that people are dealing with up and down the country, not just politicians, but family members, friends, is how to deal with people that perhaps have fallen down a rabbit hole of misinformation, particularly nowadays surrounding the vaccine. Uh, we've had all the wonderful news, but of course, with that wonderful news, there will be more misinformation. How do you, as a politician, deal with your constituents when they come to you with uh, bits of what you might conceive as misinformation? What's your strategy of trying to talk people around to understanding facts rather than misinformation? I try um, very hard to redirect people to factually accurate sources. So the gov.uk website I've used continually and that's what it's there for is to provide the most up-to-date information so to try and send people back to the information sources so that 
in some ways they can take the decisions themselves, but this is the factual guidance on the vaccines. With regards to individuals, even out walking the dog this morning, um, I did join in a conversation about vaccines on the beach, where somebody was stating this, that and the other. I was like, oh, I don't think that's quite right. Um, you know, they're, they're my neighbours, they know who I am, but I am not I, I'm not going to just stand back and let factually incorrect information circulate. And what what was the reaction that you got when you say to people, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that is, this is true. Here's some literature you should read. Do, do they accept your word because of your status as the local MP? Or do they say, well, actually, I, my auntie Doris put it up on Facebook and I think she's right. Um, it's mixed. And obviously people are entitled to their opinions. But I do think by presenting people with facts, they're slightly harder to argue with they still might choose to and I, I know some people always will but that certainly on the beach this morning people were actually delighted oh really oh, I didn't know that so it's it's the you know that's a conversation I wouldn't you know barge in with everyone these are people that I have spoken with in the past and um, you know up here we have a very big group of um, 5g deniers and people who believe that this is a technology that's going to do a huge detriment to their health and uh, for me it's very important that we counterbalance the information that they're putting out that isn't fact actually accurate. We've had leaflets going through people's doors in um, several of my patches now, contradicting with no evidence backing up um, their claims about how the, the vaccines are being developed, how COVID is um, being treated, that all of all of this is, is being denied. And you do occasionally see some brave person, there was one last night on one of our Facebook groups going, do you honestly think that the whole of the NHS would make this up? And, uh, you know, there are some brave people out there prepared to challenge it, but I'm surprised how few do challenge some of those norms. And I think it's, I will just keep putting facts out because I think it's important people have access to them and know where to find them. Do you have the resources as a local MP to be able to get out there and fight that misinformation? Can you create your own leaflets and uh, counter their leaflets? I mean, what tools have you been given to make sure that your constituents are not falling down rabbit holes? Well, obviously if my constituents contact me directly, we reply to as, as many as we possibly can. It, it, we, some of it's on my website. My website, we've been keeping constantly updated. The leaflets issues, you know, we work closely with our local councils here um, and have gone back to councils who are also putting out a huge amount of information. My council, um, county council here has done a fantastic job and my district council in ensuring residents can use them. So if they don't choose for whatever reason to trust their MP, they've got councils and we are working together to make sure that the information is consistent so that what I'm sharing is the same as what the county and the district councils are sharing and our local news channels have been much better actually in fairness at, at accurately reporting information as to what's going on. I think my concern has remained as to what's going on on some of the social media which isn't moderated in the same way so people can obviously just air their opinions without having to back it up with facts. Would you like to have the power as, as the local MP, if, if you knew where those leaflets came from, would you like to have the power to say, well, look, you're not allowed to spread those leaflets to put them through people's doors? Or do you think that's going a little bit too far? I'm quite torn on it because I do worry about the implications. I think we need to be given the opportunity to choose and that we need to be able to take responsibility for our actions. But we need to have the information that says this is how the virus transmits. If you do these things, you will be less likely to receive it or transmit it. And if you do these things, you are more likely to. People choose to ignore that advice, but I do think they should have the, the information to take those decisions themselves rather than be fed information that's not correct and then take a decision based on incorrect information. Excellent stuff. Selene, we've taken enough of your time. I think the puppy's had enough as well. <laughs> 
Cassie, both Selene and John have made much of the House of Commons Library. That is the source of all their information. For people who don't know about the House of Commons Library, is it the best place to go and get information? And how does it run? So the House of Commons Library is a really brilliant independent resource that MPs, but also the public, can use to get information. Full Fact uses the House of Commons Library uh, as a source of information. So it's actually really positive to hear MPs from both sides of the House talking about that as an independent source of information that they use and that they use to inform their constituents. Now, I sensed uh, a bit of reluctance, both from John and Selene, when I mentioned that MPs should delete a social media post or correct a statement in an interview straight away if it's been pointed out to them that the facts are incorrect. Why do you think we still have that hesitation from MPs? And wouldn't they benefit more from saying, yep, I'll put my hand up, I got that wrong, here's the correction, moving on? I think there's a fear from politicians that they will show weakness or vulnerability in admitting mistakes and that that will be kind of pounced upon. What we'd really like to get to is a culture where admitting a mistake isn't seen as a big deal. There isn't a big, you know, press hoo-ha about it. They're just able to say, I got this wrong. I'm sorry. Here's the correct information and move on. Because it would be great to get to a place where correcting information is seen as a normal thing to do. It's interesting, isn't it, that Selene, as part of a new intake, mentioned that social media is a very hostile place. And I wonder whether that is part of the reason why we're not seeing too many politicians be comfortable with correcting social media posts, because perhaps they fear a backlash from one side or the other. Yeah, I think it was it was really interesting to hear what Selene said. And I think it's difficult when you're not a politician or a public figure, perhaps to understand that impact and to know how the different people on your social media accounts interact with each other. So I think um, that's something that we always need to be aware of. But as I said, if the culture is closer to it not being a big deal when you correct something, then we can hopefully take away some of that pressure from politicians that prevents them from admitting when they make a mistake. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, That's Cassie Staines, one of the Full Facts policy managers uh, you heard from there. That's all we have time for on this episode of the Full Fact podcast, which was released on the 30th of November. The views of John and Selene are not a reflection of Full Facts. Full Fact is an independent and impartial charity, and you can read all about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about.